Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? My name is Matthew. If we haven't met yet, uh, I'm uh, one of the pastors at um, our, our, one of our three campuses here. Uh, I spend most of my time in Walnut Grove, but it's a pleasure to be here today at Alder Grove with all of you. And uh, congratulations on being eight months old. That's really great. There, there, obviously, there's a story of 85 years of, of, of worship here, and, uh, but in this, in this chapter, you know, eight months, and so, so grateful to watch the Bethel community, uh, the North Langley community, and then many of you who are brand new uh, and weren't involved in either communities to, to, to form a beautiful new family. And uh, it's, just, it's just awesome to watch it happen. And my encouragement to you is to be praying for your leaders uh, who are here. Uh, they love you so much. Um, all of them are such a great team. And just be praying for them. Because as you can imagine, in the last eight months, there has been a lot that has happened. And, uh, and, uh, and, and don't worry, they're still encouraged. They're still loving it. <laughs> but just remember to pray for them. Because there's so many decisions. There's so many new faces, new, new ways of trying. I know their heart. Uh, I know Kevin's heart, John's heart, Matthew's heart, Isaac, Amelia. The list could go on and on. But their desire is to see all of you in community, loving one another, connecting with Jesus, following Jesus, um, you know, yeah, loving your neighbor, seeing kids connecting with Jesus, like that's their heart, and I love them, and, uh, and just if there's any way you can send notes of encouragement, prayers of support for them, um, I know they need it, they would welcome it, they would love it, so, um, you know, Tanya and I and our kids, we'd love to attend the Aldergrove campus. That would be awesome. Um, we love it. So I also just, this is, uh, this is not as important because we know churches are not buildings, but I think out of our three campuses, you have the best building. Uh, and, uh, you know, beautiful natural light. I love it. I love how the cross is just boom, right there in the middle. So that's beautiful. Uh, and you have a balcony. My kids love the balcony. So uh, it's great. Okay, so um, if you are new to Jesus, as, as Kevin said, this, this, is, um, this is what we're all about. At our three campuses, we are seeking to follow Jesus. We use the language of apprenticeship, like we want to be apprenticed to Jesus. He is the master teacher, and we come under, under his teaching, and he shows us how to live. He shows us how to love, how um, he, he teaches us. Um, our, our ethics, our morals. He gives us a way to live. But we actually find that he is the one who died for us, who came back to life and offers us life. And so what we're trying to do here is we're on this many-year project of being a follower. We're being disciples. Uh, we want to learn from him. And so that's what we're going to continue to do all summer here at Aldergrove. We're going through the book of Luke, and I have the pleasure of looking at Luke chapter 14 uh, verses 1 to 14 with you all today. So it's going to be fun. It's a very interesting story. So I hope you have your Bible. I hope you're ready to go. You got your coffee. And I'm going to start with a kind of a, a weird story. And I say weird because I know some of you didn't grow up in uh, Christian culture. <laughs> you didn't grow up in the church. And, um, and so in the church, sometimes we do things a little weird. And uh, we get a little weird. And I'm just going to tell you a little story. This is not a big dramatic story. It's not really even that funny. It's just, a, a, just an odd story uh, about my life and about a decision I made. So, um, so you have to kind of be in this Southern American world that I grew up in. So I was born in Texas. I grew up in Oklahoma. And for me growing up, Billy Graham was a really big deal. Some of you may know that name, Billy Graham. And he, 
He was someone who shared about the love of God all over the world. And literally millions and millions of people heard him preach. Uh, and so he since passed away. But he was a pretty big deal. And so I, I was living in Oklahoma. My family's from Oklahoma. So uh, Billy Graham was coming to Oklahoma City. And I was like 23. I think I was 23. And um, <laughs> I know it sounds weird for some of you if you're just brand new to church. But like, I got so excited. It was like a band was coming to town. And I, it's like I had to get tickets. I'm like, I got to go see Billy. And it's like, the preacher, right? It's like, yes, I got to go see Billy. So I knew that it was going to be packed, right? And so remember, Billy, his message is just, uh, he leads people to come to know Jesus, right? That's what he does. He f packs a stadium filled with people, and he talks about Jesus. And so I was like, I got to go see Billy, and I got to, I have to get a good seat. So, um, so what I did is I showed up really, really early in the morning, like, like I'm going to see you too, or you know, so, so I, and I, li I was the first one in line, okay? And I had my back to the big doors of the arena, like, that were opening, and I parked it there, and I brought food and my, like, my stuff. I had my phone. I was calling friends. I was like, I'm the first one there. Like, I, like I'm literally, like, sitting against the doors. Like, the usher's going to open the doors. I'm the first one in to see Billy, and people are like, oh, that's so cool, and I'm like, yeah. These clearly my Christian friends think it's cool. And, uh, and so, and I was like, yeah. And so then like, we were trying to get, I was going to save a few seats. How many seats do you want me to save? And it was this whole thing. And I got in and I ran, like with the doors open and I was like, doo, 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 and I got the best seat to see Billy Graham, Oklahoma City, year 2003, right? So this is like, I'm there and I'm like, this is history. Billy's getting old. We don't know how long he's going to be with us. He might die soon. This could be the last time Billy preaches live and I'm here and I'm in this seat and I'm going to see it, right? I was so excited. About halfway through the message, it dawned on me when Billy was preaching He's preaching to people who don't know Jesus. Who, who is supposed to be in this seat? Probably not me, right? <laughs> this seat belonged to somebody else, right? Somebody who was maybe new to Jesus, someone who maybe needed. Then I heard that there were thousands of people that couldn't get in. They had to sit in overflow seating that night. So they were in a tent watching from a screen, right? Why? Because people like Matthew, who are Christians, <laughs> took all the seats. And we were there to see a band, right? Someone amazing. And I had the best seat in the house. And I was there to see someone famous, but if only I had saved my seat for someone who could have heard about Jesus. Really the only famous person that mattered at that moment, right, was Jesus. And today, Jesus will literally say the following. Listen to this. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, but when you're invited, take the lowest place, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And I tell you that little story because I literally chose to do the opposite of that, right? And today, you and I will find that it's not always about actual seats, right? It's about the disposition of the human heart. Today, Jesus will challenge me and you to live lives of selfless humility in an age of selfishness, of self-taking, of self-centeredness. Jesus is going to invite you to a life of humility. 
In an age of selfishness, Jesus will invite us into a posture of humble love. And in the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Let's pray. So Jesus, I am well aware of the selfishness of my own human heart. God, this week, as I've been thinking about this text, you've been challenging me, uh, and I feel like I'm just beginning to see it. I don't see it all, but I'm, I'm seeing the selfish moves that I make. And King Jesus, we would ask in your mercy that you would come with your gentle conviction and show us how to live, show us how to love, heal our hearts, and I pray that you would cultivate lives of humility in this room so that the city of Aldergrove, so that all those surrounding homes would look at this church, would look at these people, and be drawn to you. God, we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. All right, well, let's read the passage. Luke 14. We'll start in verse 1, and we'll read to verse 14. Just to let you know, there's going to be three subsections, three, three mini-stories in one larger story. Jesus is being welcomed to dinner. And here's what happens as he goes to dinner. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him, a man suffered from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said this to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So, this is the word of the Lord. All right, thanks be to God. So, let's uh, walk through the text, and as I mentioned, there are three sections to the story. So, we'll start in part one. And uh, by the way, I love Alder Grove because there's not a clock staring at me telling me how much time I have. So, do we have all day? Is that, is that, is that the message I'm gleaning here? So, uh, anyway, just kidding. Um, We'll, we'll work through it in a timely manner. So, beginning in part one. 
the healing of a man on the Sabbath. So did you notice this started with the healing of a man on the Sabbath? One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Now notice, Jesus is invited to dinner, but he's being carefully watched. In the Greek, those, that set of words is ominous. Uh, he's being monitored, right? There's CCTV footage, right? It's just, we're watching you. This is not a friendly invite. This is creepy, actually. We invite you over, smiling, right? But we're watching. We're watching every move you make. This is how the religious powers monitor Jesus. They're suspicious of Jesus, and so they'll keep their friends close, but they'll keep their enemy closer. And Jesus has really become their enemy. Verse 2, there in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Now Jesus can see, he's there at dinner, he looks around, and here is a man whose limbs have swollen. They're just large. The man is suffering from uh, dropsy, or, or what we today in the medical community would call edema. This is a condition where there's accumulation of liquid in your body. And it causes swelling and poor circulation. And, and it can be extremely painful. Extremely painful. I mean, just pause. How do you have dinner uh, when a man is suffering right there? Right. Verse 3, Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? If you're new to Jesus, I'll explain this in a second about Sabbath, right? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remain silent. Take note of that. They're silent. So Jesus, right, taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Just notice he's saying, leave the party here. <laughs> this, is, this is really not really, you don't want to be here, right? Then he, you know, he turns and he asks them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. Now, okay, let's unpack this. What, what, what's, what's going on? Because I think in uh, the 21st century here, we're, we sometimes have a, a few problems when we look back at an ancient text like this to understand what was really happening in the room. So first of all, what is Sabbath? You might be new to Jesus. You're going, what is that about? Uh, in Hebrew, the word Shabbat simply means to stop, stop or cease. It's a day that God had set aside. Six days, you'll work during the week, work hard, provide for others, do a good job. One day a week, do nothing. Do nothing. And there's a beauty to this law. And I, let me say more about it in a second. But in Exodus 20, in the Old Testament, the, the fourth of the Ten Commandments was the command to stop. Right? Once a week, on the seventh day, you were to stop working and you take this day to honor God, right? And you can imagine a farmer, a Jewish farmer, looking out at his fields, right, on the Sabbath day. And it's like, oh, I got to get out there, right? Like, there's stuff I forgot to do yesterday, right? So it's, it's, it's Saturday, right? And, 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 and he's, you know, but there's this sense in which he, he can't go out there. Because this day we're reminded to trust God. We're going to let it go. We're going to let it go. We're going to trust God with our field. And trust that he's going to grow what he needs to grow. And that field will not become my idol, right? It's not going to take control of me. 
Just, you know, many of your workplaces, they have taken control of you. But could you take one day a week to say, no, no, I will not, that will not, that my work will not be my master. No, I'm going to take one day to honor God and trust that he'll provide for me, right? So this is the idea. It's beautiful. Sabbath is a beautiful law given by God, right? But what's going on here? Because what's going on here is a little bit more complicated, Because the the question that Jews wrestled with was, what are the exceptions to the Sabbath law? Is is healing work? So if I, I mean, most of us are like, kind of not a problem for us because we don't know how to heal anybody, right? But but if you were to like heal somebody, you know, you pray for them, you know, you lay hands on them and you say, Lord, please heal them in Jesus. You know, is this working? Is this working? That's the question. Is Jesus allowed to work? and heal on the Sabbath. Well, the Jewish law said no one was to work, and Jesus has been accused of working in previous passages in the book of Luke when he heals someone. We've already seen this twice in Luke, so the religious leaders have a problem with Jesus here because he seems to keep working on the Sabbath. But here's what Jesus knows. He, He knows something. He knows that the Jewish leaders have their own exceptions to the rule. And you see it in the text, right? Did you see it? Jesus knows this. He says, he says this. Let's shoot straight here, fellas. If one of you as a child or an ox, by the way, I just love that. You know, a child or an ox. <laughs> it's just great. It's actually really brilliant, actually, of Jesus, because it's actually tied to the prohibition. You know, you, your son, your daughter, your ox, or whatever. That's from Exodus 20. So Jesus is linking it to Exodus 20. But if it falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? He had nothing to say. He's saying, listen, if your child, your ox, falls into a well, you would try to pull it out. And just think of, by the way, I don't know how much effort this takes, but just I'm imagining, think of it, trying to pull an ox out of a well. Have you tried to pull an ox out of, I feel like, I don't know, some of you farmers are like, yeah, I've done that. I've tried to pull, my ox fell into a well. <laughs> I don't know. This is a common occurrence. But how hard would that be? I'm imagining you're not just like, come on out. I imagine somehow the ox, you're going to be, ah, this, I feel like you're going to be working for hours, right? Putting it like a shovel underneath the ox, trying to get him out of the well, right? This is not going to be easy work for you to get your ox out of the well. And so the, the sun part is, is even more powerful, right? Because you're going, well, you'd rescue one of your family members, right? If this happened, if they fell into a well. So Jesus knows they've got an exception, right? And he's saying, if this was your son, you would do this immediately. And even, and even, if this was your animal, you would do this immediately. So where's your compassion? Where's your compassion? You would save your animals, but not this man? You're treating this man as less than your animal. This man in pain actually is a son of God who, from Jesus' estimation, has fallen into a well and needs help, right? So of course I'm going to heal him. That's what Jesus is getting at. Where's your compassion? Now, remember, let's keep reading. He's still at the Pharisee's house, right? Like, th- imagine this dinner party, right? This is not going well for the, for, for the Pharisees. Part two, 
Jesus now wants to talk about finding a seat at the party. Because now that he's done healing this man with compassion, he turns around and he's like, and let me say something else. <laughs> Let's talk about the seating arrangement. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, this is where, I mean, had I invited Jesus over, I'd be sweating. I'd be just like, oh, man, okay, let's talk about the seating arrangement. What's wrong with my seating arrangement? And uh, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the hosts who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, underline that, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place. So when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. <laughs> now, on first glance, this is really practical advice. This is great and just so you know, you should use it at the next wedding feast that you're at, right? Um, so you go to a wedding, and immediately you position yourself at the head table. <laughs> I know you, some of you are going to go to weddings this summer, right? And so you just imagine the groom and the bride are there, and you just kind of just sit right there, right, right, ne right next to them, you know? And uh, Jesus is going, yeah, so, that, so that's not great, right? That's, that wouldn't, that's not wise, not a good move. Because uh, the host is going to come and, and is going to say, excuse me, like, just leave, right? Please move, like, go to this seat. And he says, try this instead. Why don't you start at the lowest place? And then if the people at the wedding party like you, they'll be like, hey, come sit with us. You know, come sit with us. Now, some of you might be going, Wow, that is just really simple advice from Jesus. <laughs> uh, but there's a deeper layer going on. As always with Jesus, there's something deeper he's doing. Because Jesus is with religious leaders who love their place of honor. And they love their standing in the, amongst the people of Israel. For a Jewish leader, they're saying, listen, amongst all God's people, we've got the best seats in the house, Right? And there's a lot of other people that are kind of God's people, but they've got some lesser seats. Then there's some people that aren't even at the banquet, okay? We don't know about them. We don't really want them involved. But for us as religious leaders, we're, we've got the best seats in the house. Right? And Jesus is going to turn all that upside down and say, think again. Think again. You believe, you, have the, you, have the, you believe that you have this right to be honored by God. You, you believe that you've got this proximity to God. And he's warning them here, your lack of humility is dangerous because you're blind. You're blind. Your hearts are corrupt. They're not filled with love. And you're blind. And he's warning them here, your lack of humility is dangerous. The wedding feast is a theme with Jesus. And some of you who have followed Jesus for a while, you'll know this because he points to a wedding feast that's to come where he's the groom and the church, that's us, we're the bride. And there's this beautiful feast that we're called to, right? And it's a big deal. And the question is, who is God inviting to the party? Who's God inviting to the party? Well, there's a group of people Jesus is noticing who think they're there and who think they deserve the best spots. And he's, he's 
welcoming these religious leaders to open their eyes to the fact that not only do they have the honored spots, but they actually need to move to the most humble spot because they're even in danger of being invited to the banquet. They're, they're almost excluding themselves from the banquet because the banquet looks nothing like what they expect it to look like. The religious leaders see no need for the poor, the sinner, the marginalized, the outsider to be at God's feast. And he's warning them. He says, you're claiming the best seats in the kingdom of God, but your demotion is on its way. This is a dangerous way to operate. Your selfishness is a fast track to the worst seat in the house, maybe even getting kicked out, so be careful. Because self-centeredness will backfire, but humility keeps you at the banquet. Letting God invite who God wants to invite will keep you at the banquet. And now Jesus will show these leaders who to invite. So he ends our little section today with this, part three. Who we invite to the feast. Then Jesus said this to his host. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. Notice how he phrases that as though it's a bad thing, right? Like, don't don't, don't do that. Like, I mean, they're going to have the chance to repay you, right? You're aware of this, right? All of us are like, yeah, and that's great. I'd love to go to their house. They've got a nice house. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, there's a whole lot of people on God's invitation list that need to hear that they are welcome at the feast. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they're the ones who can't repay you. Why does he say this? Well, one big reason is because it's what he's doing. It's what he's doing. You'll miss the life of Jesus if you don't realize that this is what he's doing. This is, this is what God the Father is even doing through Jesus. God is inviting all kinds of people you and I, who will not be able to ever pay him back? And do we see it that way? David Garland says, all these categories of persons listed, friends, family, relatives, rich neighbors, can repay the favor. The next four categories of persons listed, the poor, crippled, lame, blind, cannot. And God is delighted to invite a ton of people who can never repay the favor. Because God is a God of selfless love. God is a God of self-giving love. And this is what he wants his people to look like. Not a tribe that loves their own. Not a tribe of people that only love those who can love them back. Jesus says, that's easy. It's easy. Why don't you try something harder? (laughs) And here's his point. Selfishness and pride are so dangerous. So dangerous. And we're starting to flip this to ourselves here at Aldergrove, right? We're going to start to bridge from 2,000 years ago to right to today. Selfishness is dangerous. The religious leaders, they're blind. Their selfishness is blinding them. They cannot see that the Sabbath allows for the healing of others. They cannot imagine offering better seats to others. 
They can't imagine hosting a banquet for others. The problem is with how they see the other. Their selfishness is blinding them and they cannot love the other. Now, just a quick, quick story to illustrate this. John Dixon, in his book, Humilitas, illustrates this point with a, with a fictional story. There's four people, and they're in a hot air balloon, okay? So in your mind, just picture, hot air balloon, four people, right? They're going to take a little tour on a hot air balloon ride. There's a mother of four children. There was a brilliant professor. He was actually a rocket scientist. Ooh. And an elderly retired pastor. And a young woman who was a backpacker. She was backpacking around. And the hot air balloon, as it goes up in the sky, it catches fire. And they only have a few seconds to put on parachutes. But unfortunately, they notice there's only three parachutes. But there's four of them. And so first, everyone agreed that the mother of four children would be the first to use the parachute. No-brainer, right? So she is able to jump out of the balloon, and she lands safely with her four kids. Next, the brilliant professor, the rocket scientist, he says, I have to survive. I am brilliant. The world needs me. So he grabs a backpack and he jumps to survive. There's only two people left. The old retired pastor looks at the young backpacker and the pastor says, you know, I've had a long life and I'm not afraid to die. Why don't you take the last parachute? And the young female backpacker is standing there stunned. And she just says, no, actually, it's really okay. That brilliant professor just jumped out of the balloon with my backpack on. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> What's the point? <laughs> the, 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 the point is that selfishness blinds us, right? We're blind cannot see. We make impulsive decisions for self-gain, right? And it could cost us our life. We make moves for our own gain that actually lead to our loss. It's the, it's weird. It's the weirdest thing, right? We make moves that keep us at the center, but the life that God designed was for us to see others at the center, to welcome others to the center, for us to desire the healing of others, for us to desire a seat for the one who doesn't have a seat, for us to desire that the poor and the marginalized are welcomed into the banquet. And Jesus promises that this will actually somehow work for our gain and their gain and the world's gain and everyone wins, right? So he says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. And he's calling you to humility today. He's calling me to humility He's calling all of us to a humble love, a love that wants men with dropsy healed, a love that sees that this man had fallen into a well, a love that wants to take the lowest seat, a love that wants to welcome people who won't be able to return the favor. This is humble love. This is what Jesus wants to do. If we believe that we are apprentice to Jesus, well, then he's the master teacher, and he wants to move into your life and start to, like, shape that in you. Now, our world often talks about love, and I've often had a bee in my bonnet on the definition of love, right? I'm just, I feel like we could mention this every single week. Because our English word love is so not helpful, right? 
As if we're, you know, we're walking around, throwing around the word, word love, selfless love, love, as though we had the correct definition. The Beatles say, all you need is love, but what is love? As we hear around us, if love always wins or love is love, like what on earth is that? What is love? In the words of Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, right? The most common word for love in the New Testament, as many of you know, is the Greek word agape, agape. F.F. Bruce, the late Scottish biblical scholar, calls agape love a consuming passion for the well-being of others. I love that. Or St. Thomas Aquinas says this about agape love. To love is to will the good of the other. Our world has a different definition of love, which aligns more with maybe the Greek word eros, eros, which is romantic love. Or it's combined with the Greek word phileo, which is a brotherly love, a friendship love. And those are great. Those are fine. But it's not what this love is talking about. The love we're called to is agape love. It's the love of God. It is a consuming passion for the well-being of others. To love is to will the good of the other. And right now, as we're beginning to apply this, I hope that a name comes to mind. I hope that a friend comes to mind. I hope that someone that you know God has been calling you to love selflessly comes to mind. That we wouldn't leave this place with a theory, but we'd leave this place with a name or two of some people in Aldergrove who need to be blessed, who need love, who need an invitation who need care, who need prayer. The worst thing in the world is for us to go back to our cars here and after lunch today to just absolutely forget about those around us. So the question is, who is Matthew called with a consuming passion for that person's well-being? Or how can I will the good of my friend, my neighbor? Because man, I'm here too. These three sections force me to put a mirror up to myself. If, if I'm honest, I am embarrassed about how void my heart is of agape love. Not seeing the hurt and the need for healing around me. Matthew Price is quick to promotion, taking the best seat for myself. I am slow to welcome others in love. Because I know the joy of being welcomed back, right? Invited back by those who can return the favor. And if I'm honest, I am not living with a consuming passion for the well-being of others. If I'm honest, I am not living, willing the good of the other. I had a really funny moment. And uh, is Stephen Eiserman here? Okay, he's not here. Okay, I just embarrassed him saying his name and he's not here. But anyway, he goes to this campus and uh, uh, sometimes he plays bass guitar on stage here. But I had the greatest conversation with him the other day and I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this. But uh, a few months ago, I had the opportunity to go to West Africa to do some work with a group of Christians in West Africa. And I had been to East Africa, you know, three or four times. I'd never been to West Africa. And so 
So uh, a year ago, I was excited because I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, I'd love to go and be able to, like, bless the church there and learn from the church in West Africa and, and just have this mutual ministry time. And, uh, but as the months go on, it, it, it kind of started to feel like, oh, okay, all right. Um, how many of you love plane rides? It's like, okay, so how many plane rides? It's like, yeah, like three to get there or something. Uh, Caleb, who goes here, he was with me, um, and lots of plane rides, and then I've got three kids, and I was thinking, ah, to be gone for two weeks, and uh, you know how it goes, right? All of a sudden, I'm starting to think through um, all of the things that I'm going to, like my routine, my sleep, my rest, my comfort, and just so you know, I was like a missionary kid growing up, so I should have a better attitude about this, but I started to get like a bad attitude. And I was like, oh, like, oh, who wants to, like, lose that much sleep? And then I get, like, claustrophobic in airplanes and then, like, airplane food. And then, you know, the feeling of, like, traveling for, like, 30 hours and you're just like, I need a shower. I, I, this is gross. You feel gross. And then when you're there, you got to be on your game and you got to be, like, really friendly and you got to be, like, an extrovert and be like, ah, oh, this is great. And then you're just, like, tired. And, uh, and, and... So anyway, I was just thinking, I don't really want to go. So anyway, it was funny. I was talking to Stephen Eisenman, and uh, he was great. He was just like, so, wait, so why aren't you, like, pumped about this? And I was like, oh, because, you know, sleep and stuff, and, like, I don't know, being away from the kids. And he's like, I, there's a pause on the phone. And he's like, but you're going to Africa. Have you, have you been to Africa before? And I was like, yeah, I've been a few times. And he's like... I would love to go to Africa. That would be amazing. Why aren't you more pumped about this? And I'm like, uh, you know what, Stephen? You're, you're right. You're right. I need to be way more pumped about this. Actually, that conversation changed me. And I was like, Matthew, wake up. Like, give your head a shake. You have the opportunity to go hang out with Christians in West Africa, to learn from them, to hang out with them for a couple weeks, to like be blessed by them, to actually have this amazing time of ministry. And you're locked in this selfishness about sleep and comfort and whatever. So I have a journal entry. I'm not going to read it to you, but I was just like, it was, it, it was something to the effect of give your head a shake, Matthew. Get, like put on a better attitude and think about how you can go to bless others. Think about that. Stop thinking about yourself. And I actually found it is very difficult for me to stop thinking about myself. Because even the more I think about this, the more I'm thinking about myself. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, okay, self, self, stop thinking about self. And it's like, that doesn't work. You know, how does this work? It's like, think about the other and try to bless the other. And so I want to introduce you just in our last couple of minutes here to a, uh, what's called the spiritual discipline of secrecy. Spiritual discipline of secrecy. Just so you know, that is, sounds wrong. It's like keeping secrets from each other and that's a bad thing. Right? So that's not what this means. But it's anchored in Jesus' teaching that when you give to the needy, he says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Yeah, so your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Jesus encouraged us to give, to love, in some quiet ways, in some secret ways. And so if you are feeling like I do, that I've got a massive problem with selfishness, let me introduce you to a practice of secrecy, which means practicing how you can love someone else without being known. How can we do acts of welcome and love that are private, quiet, 
unannounced, not posted on social media, where a tax deduction may not be forthcoming, a welcome to a meal, an anonymous gift to someone who is hurting, prayers for someone who may never know you're praying for them. And as you and I practice the discipline of secrecy, and again, please always hear that word in the right way. Maybe we should change the word, right? But this is what Jesus uses. He uses secret. As you practice the discipline of secrecy, that God begins to heal your heart and mine and to go, this thing that I'm doing will never be known. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to post it. I'm not going to share it. My thing is like, I'm not going to suddenly sneak it into a sermon to sound like a nice person. <laughs> that's, that's the world that I'm in. It's, I'm going to keep it quiet. And I'm just going to let it be what it is. An act of love. With no strings attached. <laughs> and I cannot even be invited back. Right? The, the person can't even repay me. <laughs> right? What does that look like for you? Just ask the question. What does it look like for you? Can I just say, have fun with it? Enjoy it? Enjoy this beautiful deeds done quietly where the only person that knows you did it was God? What would that look like? And how would that start to just like heal you in ways that you weren't even aware you needed healing? You know? Let our love be done in secret. We see the other. Acts of love where we never get the credit. Dallas Willard says this. He says, in the practice of secrecy, we experience a continuing relationship with God independent of the opinions of others. That is so healing for me. I suddenly get to relate to God without even thinking about the approval of others. I, I, I get to have this relationship with God where I am not hungering for the celebration that comes from others being shaped to love with a consuming passion for others, willing the good of the other. And what happens? Then God slowly gets to have all of us. We're not holding anything back from God. He starts to shape our whole life. A.W. Tozer says this, God wants the whole person, and he won't rest till he gets us in entirety. No part of the man will do so, as I end here, let me ask, how do you need to be shaped? How can the Holy Spirit gently move in your life that you would see the need around you? Do you see it? Do you see the need around you? How can the Holy Spirit gently come and slowly heal your selfishness and mine? How can the Holy Spirit slowly move in your life and inspire these acts of agape love in the secret. Philippians 2 again. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Northangley, we, you know, Aldergrove, <laughs> we can't do this. We can't, right? Uh, only Jesus can give us the strength to do this. Why? Because he did all three. Notice, Jesus healed us, touched our lives with compassion. He saw us at the banquet. 
and turned toward us to touch our lives and heal us. Right? And what did he do? Jesus also took the lowest seat. He ended up on a cross taking the lowest seat so that you and I might find life. Right? And what else did he do? In searching for us, he welcomed all of us, poor, crippled, all of us sinners, into his banquet. You see, Jesus was able to fulfill all three of these things. And he's never going to ask you to do something he wasn't willing to do himself. And he's never going to ask you to do something that he will not empower you to do. Right? You can do this in him. He loves you. He'll give you the strength to do it. So let's pray. As we close our eyes, uh, maybe let's stand together. Let's stand together as a church family. The worship team's going to come forward, but as we pray, I would welcome you to hold out your heart. Many of us as Christians, sometimes it's helpful to hold our hands out as an experience of receiving. And what I'm going to ask right now is that as you receive God's love, that you would know that there are people here that are ready to pray with you. And so if you're new to Aldergrove, there's some prayer teams on the side up front here ready to pray. There's a prayer room out in the foyer where we're going to invite God to heal us. And so Holy Spirit, would you come? Spirit of God, we are absolutely trapped in our selfishness. And we would ask in your mercy that you would flood us with your love. That we, as we look to the cross, that we would see Jesus and his love for us. And that that would heal us and inspire us to love others. And holy God, I pray right now that you would bring in this room, into all of our minds, literally hundreds of people across our city that you this week want to bless. Right now, would you just bring names to mind? Those who are sick. Those in the hospital. Those who are living with broken hearts. the poor. Those who are lonely and in need of a friend. God, in our mind, as we think of those names and those people, we know you love them with a passionate love. And we pray that this week we'd be your hands and feet, ready to love, ready to do quiet acts of kindness and humble love for the glory of your name. We love you, God. Amen.